gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 34, the review segment for Friday, August 8th, 2014. Today we're back with our month of August lineup that includes uh, your regular host and Joanna Robinson. Hi. Hi again, Joanna. We're so Hello. glad you're here. Hooray. Thanks for having she's me back. going by 7 no Oh, it's right so... Uh, well, don't try Savannah. to pronounce it. Just Savannah. go with it. Savannah. <laughs> Savannah, right. It's very simple. Um... <laughs> Anyway, we have a grab bag of reviews for this week because not, all four of us failed to see any of the same things. And uh, it's that kind of week where maybe it wasn't worth the time to all of us see the same things. Um, so we have, let's see, five different movies to talk about. So we're going to have to uh, go through them relatively swiftly. Micro-sized. Micro-sized. they all lend themselves to snippets I don't know. of comment. I have so much to say about the intricate plot of 100-Foot Journey. But I hope so. We'll get there, we'll get there later. Um, we're starting with What If, which is the movie most of us have seen. That is me, David, and Joanna. Um, not Patches. Sorry, Patches. We'll, we'll get to you later. Uh, way to let us down, Patches. And not just know. us, but also everyone But everybody. What if and, I had seen it? And what Daniel if? Radcliffe. <laughs> I know. Daniel Radcliffe is weeping. Although so I saw it when it was called The Ford. The F Word. The F Word. Which was a much better movie. Much better title for it but we'll get into that later well we won't get into that whatever go with the original title what if it's a romantic comedy starring daniel radcliffe and zoe kazan they are cute and short and young and why wouldn't you want to see them fall in love in a movie the f word of the title refers to being friends and they meet cute at a party and then she reveals she has a boyfriend who's played by rafe spall i guess best known as the guy in life of pi who the story's being told to no that- he was a prometheus oh god he timothy was an- and, son. and well, in yeah. one day Oh, yeah, in the, the uh, universally beloved one day. And in Timothy Spall's uh, testicles. <laughs> I did not know that, but that makes perfect sense. I, uh, I, didn't know that, I didn't know that sons came out of testicles is what I really meant by that comment. <laughs> not, not ultimately, oh. but... That's, <laughs> that's my where, favorite. They don't just come straight out? <laughs> that's Mom. my favorite Holly, Hollywood like, game to play. If you, if you see someone, you're like, I don't get why you get the jobs you get, but I do recognize your last name. And then you look mm. it up and you go, ah... I see. I mean, I'm not. That's not a major diss on race ball. I just kind of. I think he's. uh, He was quite good in one day, and he was he was perfectly adequate in a role that shouldn't have been in the movie necessarily in the life of Pi. And you know what he's really good in is Anonymous, the Roland Emmerich story about who the real Shakespeare was. Oh Oh my god, the real Shakespeare. What about what if? What about what if? (laughs) Well. Rafe Spall plays Zoe Kazan's boyfriend, but really she's meant to be with Daniel Radcliffe, as we learn from their sparkling chemistry when they first meet and throughout the movie as they try to be friends and kind of go through the various travails of what happens when you try to be friends. When Harry Met Sally taught us about this so long ago, but they don't go through the hating. That, that is the F word, just to clarify. Yes, well, that's what I said before we got into oh, this you did? I'm sorry. Uh, tangent. I thought it was fort versus forte. That's fort. what I thought. Yeah, most that too. Um, so we watch them try to be friends and watch him be in love with her and her be cute and him be cute and... I don't know. There's not a lot to say about the plot of this movie. It's mostly about the fact that it's funny and these two are charming to watch together. And it's kind of an unabashed rom-com at a time when rom-coms are not something that everyone's kind of trying to subvert all the time. And this movie, you could call this movie subversive because of the kind of humor and the, you know, various different ways it goes a little bit more less traditional. But it's a pretty classic comedy in that format. And that's what I really liked about it. 
Um, David, I'm interested to hear what you think first, because I think a lot of people think of this as a classic Sundance movie, even though it wasn't at Sundance. It's got that like cute, quirky romance thing going for it. And you really liked it, and you hate Sundance movies. So uh, so what happened Well, here? it's not a Sundance movie. It premiered at Toronto, at Toronto last year. Because for, it is a Toronto movie. So. For a couple of reasons. It is, it is very much a Toronto movie, and it luxuriates in that. You could almost say that Toronto is like a character. What? <laughs> I would never say that. Um, but uh, it, doesn't have, it doesn't have that feeling of um, trying too hard, for lack of a better term, that a lot of these Sundance rom-coms that squeak through – do it doesn't have an angle like that it's just good it's just it, it's cleverer than a lot of its ilk it's sweeter and more charming both zoe kazan and daniel radcliffe uh are very watchable uh they, they're really sweet humane portraits and you want them to be together which is really 90 percent of the battle in a movie like this um and uh michael douse who directed the film who is canadian himself and i think you know had not a small part in getting the movie to premiere at toronto he made goon which i know a lot of people like it's uh the rare good hockey movie and he i think was was he was involved in take he directed take me home tonight but i think that movie had problems that probably existed beyond him uh, and Fubar. He's, he's a bit of a local hero in, in Toronto, but um, it's a, uh, it's a really, really sweet movie. And I, what I liked about it and I haven't seen it in about a year now, but what I remember really liking about it was beyond its charm that it also didn't shy away from, from giving its characters tough love and, and sort of having them confront their foibles and to make it hurt as much as it should in order for people to snap out of things and, and actually go after what it is that they want. And uh, I think that helps elevate it even further beyond this, the, the standard of, of films like this. And I think it's, it's especially in the dog days of summer, uh, it's going to be a very, very refreshing movie uh, for people who seek it out. And so I yeah. definitely highly recommend it. Joanna, you saw it about ten minutes ago. So, uh, having a, a years on a year on David, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I, I really love this as a. This is my first. This is my favorite Daniel Radcliffe performance, actually. Oh, um, that's actually, I just, that's a good point. I think it might be mine too. Yeah, I just thought he was really natural, really great. I've, I've never been against him. I just thought that this was his best performance yet. I'm um, against him. <laughs> uh, Zoe Kazan, I I know that. She wrote The Great and was in The Great Ruby Sparks, which is the sort of anti-Manic Pixie Dream Girl story. So I was curious to see how the Manic Pixie Dream Girl played out in this movie. And, and I think that they put plenty of things in place to sort of bust that open. So I, I liked that. They, they did seem very believable together. And, of course, I loved um, Adam Driver and Mackenzie Davis as like the tall foils to these tiny, adorable people. <laughs> they um, really are literally tall and yeah, I liked I liked how Ray Fall the character is he, he's seen as having like because he's the sort of competing love interest as Katie mentioned he seems to have this sort of like violent undercurrent but they never demonize him in a way that romantic comedies especially the lazier ones tend to do where they're just like he's evil how could she ever like him um, it's destined that the the nice guy is going to win the girl like a trophy and like I think that by not pushing the the antagonist character such as it were beyond the bounds of humanity it actually works to deepen the relationship that 
the two main characters have. Right. He's not the Bradley Cooper. He's in Wedding Crashers. He's like the Bill Pullman who doesn't get right. the girl or whatever. Right. The Baxter. Like the like Baxter. Uh, like Peter Gallagher and while you were sleeping and stuff. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I want to talk about what if more, but we have so many reviews ahead of us. But I'm glad I like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl comparison. I think that's an interesting thing to think about as you watch this movie and something that's actively working against. And Zoe Kazan, I didn't like Ruby Sparks that much, but I think she's smart about what that trope is and uh, how to be a, a real person as opposed to just that ideal. So yeah, what if? Yeah, it has Tom a Tom. has a really cute score by uh, A. C. Newman of the New Pornographers, which oh, might I help get some. That. Butts in seats, if uh, that's your thing. Yeah, and a killer Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zero song over the end. Like, yeah, it's just got that classic, like, 500 Days of Summer soundtrack that I think people really but respond it, to. But it's not Red terrible, alert. like, 500 yeah, Days of Summer. <laughs> Sound the alarms. I just said soundtrack. I just said soundtrack. All right. Um, moving on to something. I, I, who wants to find a segue between What If and Ninja Turtles? Uh, what if is a good movie? Ninja Turtles <laughs> is not a good movie. There's your segue. I'm going to hand this over to Patches since I have not seen Turtles, and Patches seems to not loathe it, unlike someone on this podcast you might have heard already. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much despise this movie. <laughs> <laughs> There's my boy. There's something I, I, I want to just say for all the people who enjoy mindless entertainment who don't like us smelling our own farts out there <clears throat> um, wow. that this is mindless entertainment. But um, I think it would grate on anyone with a mind, uh, even if they're trying to shut it off during it and just be nostalgic about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, the movie's pretty incoherent, and I'm pretty sure it's almost just like the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the late 80s. I, I'm trying to remember the plot of that, but basically, uh, you know, April O'Neil is trying to break a story on the Foot Clan and Shredder and all this crazy stuff that's happening in New York and she runs into the turtles and then the turtles expose help her expose a plot and there's some action and it's a very swift 80 minutes I, I will it's I'll give it 80 that minutes would you no it's no. not 80 minutes okay it's, like it's 100 minutes I'm minutes. sorry it, no it's long as shit really it doesn't it doesn't feel that long to me because nothing happens in this movie <laughs> I mean it just like get to the action beats already and then it does thanks did it feel like an origin story to you or would you say it didn't qualify as such no, and I well, it's hard not to compare this to the first Turtles movie, if only because they seem identical to me. Like, uh, and with the turtle origin, I mean, I know you mentioned is this an origin story, and I just said that there is a turtle origin in it, but it still doesn't feel like a superhero origin story in that way. It kind of glosses over like how did these guys become turtles, as opposed to that first Turtles movie that has some nice like I don't know. I, I have the the image of baby splinter teaching baby turtles martial arts burned into my memory from that movie and this one totally glossed over that it doesn't matter nothing in this movie really matters as long as the turtles are fighting something eh, but i'll give it credit for for that for the action mm. uh, and for the turtles um that are not fully rendered turtle? like the apes in dawn of the planet of the apes but they have personalities. These are the turtles that people grew up and enjoy. And um, when they're in a room just kind of shooting the shit, it's pretty, it's kind of fun. Um, Megan Fox is atrocious. Will Arnett is horrifying. Uh, William Fickner, if, if you were excited to see this guy play a villain in a big blockbuster movie, do not see this because you, you don't want this to be the moment for William Fickner. Um, he does absolutely nothing. And I'm not even sure what happens to him at the end of the movie. Like, Oh, yeah, I can't even remember. Uh, and we just saw this hours ago. Uh, yeah, but but when the turtles get in the same room, there's a scene where they're riding up an elevator. That's like, the only boxing together. Only good scene in the movie. And I'm like, holy crap! This and is wonderful. 
Wait, they're beatboxing? Yeah, they, they you know, yeah. they make you know, a big like point. Do, yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> they're natural born beatboxers. It's, uh, <laughs> wait, Joanna, did you see this movie? No, no, no. Okay, they, they, I, this movie's atrocious. I mean, it's really, I, it's one of the worst films I've seen this summer, at least oh, of, you know, the on. blockbuster variety. What What's worse? What, what movie that cost north of $75 million was worse this summer? <laughs> Name one. I can't even remember the. You can't because there aren't any Transformers. Uh, no, clearly, I, trans- Transformers was was. We'll draw this line in the sand. The People know that, you love Transformers. Jonathan Liebsman is the person that. When people complain about how much they hate Michael Bay, Jonathan Liebsman is who they really hate. He's Michael Bay without any of the things that make Michael Bay interesting. And, and it now is with very, more lens flare, thankfully. Right. It's very noticeable that this movie was produced by Michael Bay uh, because his influence is all over it. Uh, but yeah, I think the turtles are just disgusting. I mean, the designs are, are gross. The CG feels terrible. I mean, See, like, I, I never. I'm on board with that kind of stuff. There's a scene that's been teasing the trailers where they're kind of sliding on the back of their shells going down a a uh, snow-covered mountain and outrunning some falling cars and some jeeps that are chasing them and I actually think that that is it's it's nearing Tintin yeah <laughs> level greatness it's like Tintin <laughs> without the artistry it's uh... <laughs> but it is coherent which I was surprised like this mm. movie could easily fall into just polygonal chaos okay, but the which first the way action I think Transformers scene, does but this movie the first not. action scene where the foot invades their sewer is completely incoherent <laughs> it's completely incoherent and like none of the action there's one beat one move in any of the action scenes in the movie Donatello owns it that is satisfying That's he's the, the best least. turtle wait can uh, we just quick let's pause on this review for a second what's everyone's favorite turtle Joanna uh, Leonardo yeah. Yeah, Leonardo. Katie. Except for he Donatello. sucks in this movie. We were so we're all Leonardo or Donatello fans. I'm kind of both. I um, you know most people go Raphael, Michelangelo. It's all weird those because Wolverine fans go none Raphael. None of us are none of us are fun. Raphael in this Pretty movie much. looks like Brett Michaels. Uh, he's they great. Wear... Actually, Raphael is a character that usually annoys me, and I, I enjoyed how gruff he was, but like compassionate. And the, the writing is kind of funny. And no, it isn't. It, right, but I'm really describing. Is... I'm only describing thirty percent of the movie when I kind of it's champion atrocious. the turtles. It's it's too disgusting, and and not like <laughs> not. It, it's just an ugly, shitty movie that. Kids won't appreciate. Adults won't appreciate. I don't know who this movie was made for. The sort of mythical middle ground there. Um, it's I guess not colorful and fun for kids. There's uh, Splinter. Oh, looks that is a terrible awful. design. That is, just, uh, and getting Tony Shalhoub to do his voice is just uh, a travesty. Wow, Tony Shalhoub is. Listen, so- Jonathan Leaves, Like, how does someone fail upwards? Like he has, <laughs> and I guess only in Hollywood. It's really remarkable. This guy, the, well, this the scene in the is, elevator is the only good thing he has ever made in his career as a feature filmmaker. This movie is hitting the, the walls of its budget. It's clearly overextending, but I will give it credit too for having action scenes with mocap, with live act- action actors that are set during the day. Like I feel like every movie these days is just shrouding everything in darkness and night to kind of um, make us not see how crappy the effects are. At least here, the big finale is out in the day. The big finale. The subway scene and the sewer scene. Uh, the first two action scenes are both completely incoherent because the they're hill. shrouded in dark. So this movie is not good. We don't it's, have to linger too much. It's terrible. Look, you will be bored. Uh, here's, my question about, here's my question about who it's for. You don't think it's trying to lean on people's nostalgia? Adult well, nostalgia? Of, but of that's what it can't do. It, it's not going all in on adults who still have a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fantasy or fandom, which, by the way, I was sitting next to two 
20 something girls during the screening and they started crying at one point because they were so moved by an emotional beat that happens to splinter. And okay. I was like, wow, this is, real. Um, this is something. The, what, what's interesting about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is that more than almost any of the other franchises that Hollywood is happy to endlessly regurgitate, it lends itself to being remade because the way the turtles grew up, uh, learning everything they know about how to interact with the world is through pop culture. And so they sort of serve as mirrors of whatever pop culture, whatever generation uh, the iteration of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is reflecting. So uh, that's why I think fundamentally it's okay to have a reboot in 2007 or whenever it was and to have one now and to have um, – you know, I think that it, it, if more is made of that, if the characters are actually shaped – uh, from these things. It could be interesting. But what this movie ultimately reflects more than anything else, or almost exclusively, are the worst of our pop cultural tendencies these days. It reflects the filmmaking that is so atrocious and the, the, the tendencies that run so rampant in our blockbuster cinema. It's, it reflects the worst of that and not – it's few nods to popular culture. There's like a Wu-Tang Clan reference, a Lost reference. They Gwen watch Stefani. Gwen they Stefani dancing. None of these things really add up because the turtle's dynamic is so unformed and they're really nothing more than adjectives uh, that have been grown in a lab. Right. So, and, they, and, they, and Jonathan Liebsman can't calm down. Like he feels every every shot. I don't know to be if he's aware that – I don't know if he knows that you can actually merge two bits of stimuli in one shot. Like you can actually – like take the camera out and reveal that two things are sharing a space and <laughs> interacting with each other. Uh, he is only able to have one thing augment another through a cut, and it is terrible. What? Are you, my problem is he's always swooping around. Like when Megan Fox is trying to recite this awful dialogue and she can't. I mean this is really – they keep making jokes about how she sounds crazy, but her crazy just sound it lands with a thud. And Leesman – is swooping around her the whole time. Like if maybe if he dances around Will Arnett, <laughs> one of Megan two Fox, modes. It's either the one I talked dancing. about or the swooping, which is totally CG augmented as nothing. Like there's no actual. There's camera. no life to this movie, yeah. as seems pretty obvious. Right, let's move films, on. But yeah, never talk so. about this movie. Let's again. go to great <laughs> films right now. Yeah, great directors: Lasse Hallstrom, director of Chocolat. Everyone loves that movie, and the two most recent Nicholas Sparks movies, which I think most people tend to forget. It's called The 100-Foot Journey. It's got Helen Mirren as a snooty French lady who doesn't want Indians uh, opening a restaurant across the street from her. But she's not a racist, which is important to know as this movie goes on. Um, she's just competitive. She's just competitive. She's like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like Devil Wears Prada, but with uh, – it's like Devil Wears Prada meets Julie and Julia, which I'm sure is on a poster somewhere. Like and uh, It's like a streetgasm. I know. Well, And, and, and our, uh, our screening came with a video introduction from Steven Spielberg and Oprah, oh which was amazing. I don't know if it's going to be playing in front of regular screenings. No, I sincerely hope it Why not? It would never – that would never Why did they – they recorded it just for critic screenings? That's crazy. No, like for fans – for fan screenings, for like big screenings. Those diehard 100-foot. <laughs> 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 I loved this book. It's probably in the Oprah's bestseller book club. Uh, right so maybe yeah. for something like that. Uh, so this Indian family winds up moving to France, opens a restaurant in this picturesque rural French town. It happens to be across the street from a restaurant with, uh, one Michelin star trying for two. The gold three is reserved only for the gods, as I learned watching this movie. Uh, and then they, uh, they learn to embrace each other's cultures and they cook omelets and curries and 
not a whole lot ha- happens does, in this movie. Does it feel like uh, the best exotic marigold? Hotel? Yeah, that's the vibe it's, I get. Well, I mean, it does, and I like that movie. I should. say. I like that movie too. But, Are you excited um, for the second best marigold? Which who exotic isn't? Marigold it's called? Hotel? Yeah. Who yeah. isn't? <laughs> The just as good exotic marigold hotel. <laughs> I feel like this is a little different because best exotic marigold hotel is definitely about you know white people transplants being like ooh India and this movie is more about cultural mixture and what it could I mean not rags to riches necessarily but just like someone propelled out of their home and into a new world and and spicing up life with Indian yeah. spices. Uh, so million dollar arm. <laughs> It's so much better than Million yeah. Dollar Arm. Million Dollar Arm. Million this dollar. sounds like a think piece waiting to happen, though. Just a, a trend. <laughs> all these uh, movies about India. And all of them are scored by A.R. Rahman. Oh, I mean, there's a, there's a longer history of this. It goes back to David Lean and and even uh, like Jean Renoir. But I think there's a, definitely a resurgence of white people going to India movies. Well, this movie's this about Indians opposite. coming to white people. So it's a little oh, different. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, it's... It's it's a foodie movie. It's not as much of a foodie movie as I was hoping. There are some loving close-ups of the food, but I think not enough. Um, but it's got this gentle spirit to it that I found really engaging and kind of a lack of conflict that's charming in a way. Like, they keep introducing these, like, pseudo-villainous characters. You're like, all right, well, that guy's going to come back and, like, cause problems in the third act. And then it doesn't really happen. It just So it's of, like, like Chef in a way. I never it's saw kind Chef, of like Chef, but, but it has a little more said. going on. Like, more is at stake in the hundred foot journey with, you know, first this family is trying to open a restaurant. Then the main guy, Hassan played by this fellow Manish Dayal, who is awesome. He's like really good. Young uh, Matt Damon in this movie. Like, he he will one day lead a born franchise if Hollywood would ever put an Indian person into a born franchise. Um, but it, it kind of rambles along to these different conflicts, uh, which, which, allows it to be much better than um, all of these movies that we're, we're mentioning here. Um, but like you said, Katie, when it tries to introduce kind of Hollywood-esque conflict, um, at some point one of the French uh, cooks who works for Helen Mirren in the opposing restaurant, uh, he really hates Indian people, or he hates invaders to his uh, country. So he Molotov cocktails their kitchen. And like or he, he hires thugs to do it. Like, yeah, and I'm just like, this is out of control. This is unrealistic within the framework. Racism mercenaries? Is he, that what it just seems out of out of control in this small French village that they live in. Like the small time confrontations that they have and the problems that they're overcoming here. This is really just about a kid who learns to cook um, and and draws himself out of a legacy that they had to leave behind. I guess what the weirdest part about this movie is so this family leaves India um, and they totally gloss over why. They just kind of mentioned that there was an election and then a, apparently there's political strife and their original restaurant burns down and they run away. Um, I don't know if there's historical context to, to what. Yeah, it is kind of disingenuous about. being like there was an election and one side was unhappy. And you're like, that seems like there's a backstory. Right. It was, it was but a they little, never really get into it. Was it was a little weird. But this um, this kid is so charismatic and Helen Mirren is so pointed but never Cruella de Vil-like that um, you can see how he's kind of seduced into the world of hot cuisine, right? And uh, <laughs> you were you were mentioning, Katie, that there wasn't enough food porn for you. I think there's quite a bit. But there what is. I, what I like about Even this more. movie is there's, 
So uh, Hassan ends up falling for this adorable Bambi-eyed French gal. She's a chef in Helen Mirren's restaurant as well. And she tells him that, you know, the first thing that you have to do as a French cook is learn how to make the five mother sauces, which I will not attempt to recite because I can only pronounce hollandaise. And tomate, I think. And tomate. Um, But so he does make the sauces and he allows her to taste them. And this is not a like foodie moment. This isn't, you know, close up soft sunlight glowing it's it's making your mouth water but it is still a foodie moment because he's like so romantic about feeding it to her or or the way he will serve someone food and it's weird and it's it's provocative it's interesting it's fun to see a, a foodie movie that's about serving food more than just food pornography if that makes that's sense. true yeah and, and you, you oh sorry go ahead jonah well, he literally spices it up, right? He puts Indian oh, spices in traditional French food. Not in the, no? well, later, not in that particular scene, but okay. he does later. Yeah, like and three movies actually, later because there's 18 movies stuffed into it. Even though not very much happens, there are 18 movies stuffed into it. It's a very strange combination. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this movie I was a lot. grinning the entire time. I just really enjoyed this kind of like rambling niceness that Lasse Holstrom is – that's pretty much his identity as a filmmaker, right? That he just makes nice movies and it's amplified here because uh, Stephen Knight who wrote Locke and Eastern Promises wrote the screenplay. Um, and I think that gives the movie a little more bite, if you will. Ah. Um, but yeah, I would, I would highly re- recommend this movie. I, I mean, telling someone to see it in theaters, um, might be difficult for me at this point, but, uh, it's quite beautiful. I mean, the photography is beautiful. The, it's it is. set in this small French village and the vistas, and there's always fireworks going on for some reason. And it, I mean, it's the Bastille day like 10 times. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's always Bastille day. I mean, the performances are just so warm and, and compassionate. It's a, it's a movie about good people overcoming the small bumps in their life to have a great life and really open themselves up to the wonders of, of taste and sensors uh, senses and that sort of thing. So, and if you resent shook a lot for being that best picture nominee, nobody wanted uh, this movie benefits from not really being trying to be important. It's just a, you know, it's a movie. And Mirren's awesome. Yeah. All right. Into the storm. I got nothing. I didn't see this movie either. Me I think either. I'm the only person who saw this movie. You are the through line of this podcast so far. I haven't seen What If. That's true. I have to go but... watch that. Uh, Into the Storm I thought was going to be a 3D disaster movie that was going to be crazy and just basically one of those effect shows at Disney World or whatnot where they just throw water on you and fire bursts up from who knows where. It doesn't matter. It's just cool, right? But this is not that movie at all. It's... Not in 3D, even though Stephen Quayle, who did Final Destination 5, directed it. Um, but it is a found footage movie. Thank God. And, oh, exactly um, it's barely one because the way that they kind of integrate the found footage concept into this is just silly. Just make it a real movie at that point, right? Uh, the, the camera quality is so good. The angles are so perfect all the time. There's no reason for this to be found footage. And I don't really understand the appeal anymore. I'm wondering if young kids love found footage and I don't understand. I want, <laughs> the kids I want, these days. Yeah. Is it a kids these days sort of thing? I wish, I hope someone out there can tell us. Because is it true that the Fantastic Four is going to be a found footage? Oh my God. I hope not. What? what? Is, are people that's, saying that just because of Chronicle? I, that's a rumor I heard. Um, so I don't want to start specious rumors. That but. That's an ugly rumor, Joanne. I need to take it back. <laughs> rumor. Um, 
trying to describe the plot of Into the Storm is really pointless. It's it's one of the most offensively does a storm come lowest common denominator like characterization. Yes, a storm comes to a small town and everyone's Shocked running away from it. And and it's a father son story about a father who just doesn't pay attention to his kid, and his kid goes, "You never pay attention." Wait, to are me. the father and son storms? Is it like a Pixar thing? I wish it, yes, I wish this was a post-human uh, disaster film where you just see tornadoes run into barns. But alas, there post-human are post-human disaster film. You say I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> yeah, minus even even living Godzillas. I'm sorry, but I just want storms. I just want giant storms. The problem is the disaster stuff sucks. Even if the humans were like barely shaded barely characterized if the if the disaster stuff was good if the action was cool it would all be forgiven but it's really piss poor uh the first tornado that comes down i kept thinking of i'm like where's the asgardian warrior summoning this schlocky bit of magic because it just looks really cheap it look it's it's awful and then by the end i mean it's basically the plot of twister all over again complete with mega tornado and you you just can't get into it because it's exactly everything you've seen before so i cannot so you're the evil it. team of other tornado scientists um well actually instead of that they have and this is the best part of the movie these two like redneck nitro circus types who are following them to get um you know the perfect youtube video that's going to get a million hits what? I kind of wish that was the whole movie because they're pretty funny uh, and I don't know. They're just always driving directly into the tornado as opposed to the storm watchers who are – or storm chasers who are always on the fringes being scientific and nonsense like that. But these guys are just running into tornadoes and I'm like, this is what Jackass 4 needs to be. It oh, needs yeah. to be Johnny Knoxville and Steve-O chasing tornadoes. You mean star um, of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Johnny? Oh yes, Johnny Knoxville, Leonardo's voice. Uh, skip into the storm. It's a it's a bore. I really cannot recommend it. Well, speaking of Mother Nature and our last movie, how about going into the depths of the sea? David, you you explain what Deep Sea Challenge 3D is. This the one of the best movies of the summer, according to David. Indeed. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's, uh, I think that comment to carry a lot more weight for you than it does for me. There's not much competition. But, uh, yeah, Deep Sea Challenge, you know, we all know by now that James Cameron is um, perhaps first and foremost a increasingly eccentric and increasingly rich uh, explorer. Um, and then he is a filmmaker. He's sort of the Howard Hughes of the 21st century. It's the closest thing we have to it. He's yet to develop raging OCD. But, he will get there right ever since he was a child as this the recreations in this movie make clear he has wanted to explore the ocean depths it is uh, a much more to his credit a much more uh, viable goal than exploring the outer reaches of space it's something you can do in the span of a human lifetime especially when you have a or james cameron and his movie career has essentially been reverse engineered to achieve this goal so from the abyss uh, to the Titanic, which he made, you know, it's a, just Titanic. It's cleaner. Uh, to Titanic, which he made because he knew that it would allow him the opportunity to go down to the Titanic and explore it. Uh, and then he immediately segued into making documentaries about undersea adventure. And then in 2012, uh, he became the first and still only man to ever sink to the bottom of the Mariana Trench to a little area of it called Challenger Deep. And Actually, that's not true. Because as he depicts in this film, two guys 
in a makeshift sub of sorts did the exact same dive. He was the first person to do it by himself, right? Oh, yeah, maybe. I guess that's true. But they, they went right back up and he explored. Right, so he, explored. he has that. He's the first man to explore. Um <laughs> He's the and, first man to go, oh, awesome! Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's, at the bottom of the that's what actually makes the movie so interesting for me, is that he's, it's not, I mean, they have the technology and have had for some time to just send a little bot down there and, and scope around, but what James Cameron does is he, and it, it's, what's, it's a really interesting portrait, and perhaps not uh, as thorough as I would have liked, of, it's a character study, really, of this guy, uh, who you, I, I was so curious about what the dynamic was between he and his team, who was funding this adventure, which they don't really touch upon in a way that I found satisfying, or really Wasn't he funding it? Like, with uh, his, like, he got, like it's all private, it's all privately funded, in on it. but there are, there's money coming from other places, I would imagine, from investors. I don't think this is the kind of thing that he could have funded. Rolex. Or would have funded entirely himself. I mean, this is a massive operation. They're working in a secret warehouse in Sydney. Uh, you have this whole team of people. One of the directors and his underwater cinematographer died uh, in a freak helicopter accident over the course of the movie. Um, but it's just really interesting to see how this Hollywood director sort of muscled his way in there with his money, but allowed these people to do something that other people weren't pushing them to do. And then still gets to be the only guy with a front row seat on this adventure that these other people have in their own way been training for their own li- their whole lives, although he has as well. It's it'd be a really rich dynamic to explore. And there are little bits here and there that you can that you can perceive from how they interact with one another. And you see that he directs them in much the same way as he directs people in a movie. And I didn't know that he had married that woman from the beginning of Titanic as his fifth wife, but apparently You didn't know that? I didn't. Maybe I didn't and forgotten it anyway. Um, but, you know, it, it's fascinating for me to see directed footage from the bottom of the sea. It's a guy – he's actually directing while he's down there. He doesn't have a directing credit on this film. But in the film within the film, he is operating the camera, these custom-built 3D cameras that can withstand some ridiculous amount of pressure per square inch. Um and he is – even though he's down there just to go wowie and he never remembers to do the science because he's allegedly down there to uh, you know, collect sediment and shit. And he's always like, oh, yeah, right. My bad. <laughs> um, he's, he's really there just to, to fulfill a childhood dream. But I think – Direct the, I, is such a loose term here by the way. I it's mean he's such pointing a, cameras at the five-degree – variable that he can i mean and, he, and there's super wide angles of just fish yeah. going by it's beautiful I, it it's really such is an incredible stunning. spectacle though i mean like to make it feel and this is the closest we'll ever get really from the closest i would ever want to get to knowing what it's like to be down there and there's not much to see there's so much more interesting things to see when you're fifteen thousand feet higher because um, not much life can survive that deep but or at least in the little it's a call to arms also because he only explored such a small percentage of the ocean floor and there's still a continent waiting to be found and i think he's hoping to encourage people to do that and to fund subsequent trips of his um so he doesn't have to go broke but uh he'll never go broke yeah but it's it, it really is pretty staggering to me to see this pristine 3D footage uh this rich textured 3D from the lowest fucking place on our planet. It it's, blows my mind in a way that something like Gravity, which already looks hopelessly out of date on cable, never could. Uh, certain parts of Gravity, at least. The rest of oh it looks gosh. still pretty good. But um, 
the uh, and so I found it really impressive. I do wish that it was it, it's such potential to be this fascinating character study, um, and it flirts with that at times, and then always backs away because his role as executive producer and, and star. I mean, I I don't think there was with all the edutainment involved. I don't know if there was much wiggle room for it to be about people so much as their wonder. But, uh, well, let me contend with this for one second and kind of pull back. On, on on the rave here, um, this movie is is suffocating on self-aggrandizement in a way. I mean, James Cameron is A obsessed. James Cameron movie is self-aggrandizing? I know. Who could, who could believe this? Um, Shock and He amazed. is obsessed with himself. This movie opens yeah, with is. recreations of his childhood where young James Cameron is in a cardboard submarine dreaming of uh, exploring the bottom of the sea. This man is crazy. Um, and you wish he could stand out of the way of this amazing mission and stop being the star of the show. You know, he's sitting in on missions or he's sitting in on meetings planning the dive. And come on, is this guy really doing anything? But this but is what makes it so interesting. Like, I love seeing this completely egotastic portrait of this guy. I mean, and you really get to know James Cameron in a way that his movies, uh, well, in a different way than his movies let you, because because you know that he survives, There, you're given permission to take the sort of schadenfreude enjoyment of watching him almost shit himself 37,000 feet below the surface as cracks rip across the hull of his vessel, and you can see him momentarily fear for his life. And you don't often get to see a person of his stature and intimidation and ego uh, crapping themselves, more or less. <laughs> and but it's, it always feels like pleasure. such an act to the point where he actually fakes passing out at some point. Um, As I mean, part, I mean, you know he's that he's performing for the camera too much in this movie for it to be to feel like a documentary for it to have the momentum that we wanted to have like the race against time to get this submarine done which is a majority of the movie i mean there is not that much underwater footage in this thing it is mostly we got to build this sub right. we got to do the test bit like test dives it's a it's very much a how did we do this um, tech it's very conventional than conventional in that regard. Um, but he's, but what, he's a Herzog hero. I mean, that's really what this is. Oh this my is god! Guy Absolutely not. Was, I, I I was dreaming of Herzog stepping in and being like, "Move over." Um, you know, a Herzog <laughs> version of this would be a much better movie. Of course, don't get me wrong. But I think fundamentally, um, it's like. And, I think that that's that's what he is. I mean, except for the thing is that unlike Agira or something, he is able to buy his way to victory. And but he's, he's just more annoying me at every turn. Than, like at some point Agira. later in the movie, he's like, why did we do this? Oh, for science, of course. You know, and then he's walking around the ruins of this South Pacific town that was ravaged by tsunamis, tsunamis talking to the residents that used to live there. And he's like my dive will one day save people like you because I'll be able to predict the tsunamis coming. You're full of shit. Get out of here, James Cameron. That's interesting. You're holding the movie accountable for his character flaws, the things that give him depth as a... He's standing in the way of his movie. I'm not blaming him for being an asshole. You can be an asshole in a movie. make it a better movie. It makes him a worse person. It's standing in the way of its subject. And what's riveting about this film is the making of this amazing sub about this mission. This is what you love about it. What's interesting about the movie is James Cameron. His mission, especially because people had already done it, then there's not enough James the, the, Cameron in it. The, is the cinema truth. of it is is fascinating. What I was saying earlier about just the, the cinema of attractions, the spectacle of of bringing these images from the bottom of the sea. That's interesting to me. But I engage with this movie most as a character study of uh, a you know famous 
and kind of someone else at the helm because the people shooting this movie are his like visual effects supervisor i agree the guy who wrote sanctum um (laughs) it's like get out of here i forgot about sanctum but i agree (laughs) i i I think uh it's all undone how could you forget about i actually like sanctum if herzog directed this movie we'd be talking we'd have a masterpiece on our hands but it's true he didn't uh and i still think to to pay fifteen dollars, whatever it is, and and see the things that this movie has on offer for ninety minutes is one of the more invigorating things I've seen in the movies this summer, and really uh, shows just how inauthentic and, and just sort of hollow a lot of the spectacles we've had. By contrast, are f that. Uh, how so much do we have to pay to summer, get Werner Herzog and James Cameron in a submarine together making a movie? Now that I with, would see. With Bill Murray in character as Steve Zissou. <laughs> Whoa! All right. Let's make that happen. Until then, we'll never talk about submarines again. What was this week's lightning round question? Yes, it was in honor of well, – actually, it's not a movie yet, but the possibility of an all-female <laughs> Ghostbusters uh, directed by Paul Feig. What what movie would you remake with an all-female cast? Joanna, you're not our guest, but we usually make the guests go. But uh, you're going to go. What what would you do? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I know. Sorry. Who, actually, you are what- – what you need to do, I don't know if Joanna can see Right, like I, I pick a pick no, you someone pick who so, tweeted. Yeah, yeah, you pick someone who tweeted us. Sorry, I yeah. just assumed that you had uh, inherited all of Dave's knowledge. No, 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 I did know that. But when you said, like, what would you do? I oh, know. okay. Sorry, I misunderstood the prompt. Give it to me again. Or I can just Hey, go. Joanna. Of yeah. all of the people who tweeted at us with their suggestions for an all-female remake of something, what was your favorite? I liked uh, Joe Grinwald's Glenn Gary Glenn Ross uh, with the tagline "Lattes are for closers." <laughs> that was uh, a they actually did that, as well. right? Didn't they do that? Yeah, at they Lachma? did. I think on, on this stage. is a thing that has happened. Yes, this is a uh, Jason Reitman joint. Ugh. Well, it hasn't been filmed, so it's there's still room for the movie version. I'm sticking by it. Patches, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about you? Uh, yes, I am going to go with at Julie Chase 413, who said high fidelity and their top fives better be good. All uppercase. Um, Is he suggesting women can't have good top fives? No, that's not the suggestion. They can have terrible top fives that we just want them to be good because that's what the movie's all about. I, I also think that um, I th- in the episode earlier this week, I said that I really wanted some female comedies that were high concepts like ghostbusters to because most female comedies are about like relationships or, or families or something um and this kind of swings the pendulum in the other way i feel like high fidelity is just about chilling and not doing very much and i don't think there are many female-led movies that are like that either i think i think a female rob gordon would be fascinating yeah for sure uh david how about you I am going to go with Dusty Husky, at Husky Dusty, who says, Stranger by the Lake. 
<laughs> now I have not seen Strangers by the Lake. I know it is a gay thriller murder something. Yep. All right, uh, so, so I just over-explained <laughs> the joke is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think Stranger by the Lake, uh, the all-female version, would essentially strip uh, the film of pretty much everything that made it interesting in the context of its I queer think cinema. Being uh, I think I here. know he is, but uh, <laughs> I, as a heterosexual male, it's hard to argue with that choice. Wow. <laughs> I think that would be a movie. Because you want to see ladies, am I right? I like, uh, anything to see that flesh. Improving <laughs> the landscape. <laughs> So uh, you sound like Buffalo Bill now. That's that's bad. Um, uh, no, I will say for real, Nick Johnson, at Nick Johnson, it says The Magnificent Seven. Because I think uh, uh, all, what we have, like Banditas? Yeah, Banditas is what I was thinking. Uh, I mean, there's like a Westward the Women. Or Bad, bad Girls. A William Wellman film, I think, from uh, from the 50s is one thing. But something like this would be um, would be much appreciated. So let's get an all-female Western going. Um, I'm going with Patrick Wren, who says, stand by me because little girls should get to look at dead bodies too, which is maybe the most disturbing thing someone has ever said to us. And also, I agree. And uh, I love now and then, but I feel like uh, it's not quite up to the level of stand by me and girls deserve that. Yeah, I was considering the Sandlot when we were talking about it originally. This- Ooh, yeah. What would be the, uh, was it Penny Pfeffercorn? Wendy Pfeffercorn? The hot yeah. lifeguard? Wendy, right? Yeah, uh, Channing Tatum. That's my answer for uh, Channing Tatum is the answer. He, he's your Zool too, right? Yeah, he is my Zool. The female Ghostbusters. Yeah, I think uh, all of these are. Wouldn't that be like League of Our Own? Well, female that's why. I, that's kind of why I rejected the Sandlot because I, I was thinking about what are traditionally male-dominated genres, and it's like war movies, sports movies. So I was trying to think of a sports movie that would I would want to see, but then I was like, oh, but a League of Their Own already exists, and it's great. But that's only one, and guys have a ton of baseball movies, so. Yeah, it's true. Give us just a bunch of uh, League of Their Own remakes. I'll take that. Wolf yeah. of Wall Street. That's what I want. <laughs> that is a good one, too. Okay. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week. All four of us, Joanna, still hanging in there uh, as our Savannah for the next few weeks. Um, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. I also write for the Dissolve Complex, where you can find my first review for them for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and some other places. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich at Criterion Corner. Patches, I believe. Yes, I am. I am Matt Patches. I write all across the internet, and I put everything on mattpatches.com, which is my Tumblr. So if you have a Tumblr, follow me. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and that's it. Hey, Joanna, how about you? Uh, I'm Joanna Robinson. You can find me most days on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. I do a couple other podcasts, including Republic City Dispatch and The Station Agents. And I'm Katie Rich. You can also find me at VanityFair.com. I don't do any other podcasts, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.